We are going to jump into a, a, a difficult topic, and it's not a topic I take lightly, but it's one that I, I, I realize that neither should we shy away from, neither should we avoid. It's, it's a topic that touches every one of us. We, we are in an environment, we are in a society that this topic is up, it's out, it's all around us, and we need to know how should we respond. How should we respond to same-sex marriage in our society? For instance, a bakery is fined a significant amount of money, thousands of dollars, over $100,000, because they, they refused to bake a cake for a wedding, a same-sex wedding, that they felt was against their conscience and against their faith, that for them to use their creative arts and skills to bake that cake would have them participating with and enhancing the celebration of something they felt they could not, in good conscience, as a matter of faith, celebrate. And so, according to the laws as they are in our, in our, in our society today, they were, they were fined, punished because of that. Should they have just baked the cake? Or others have said, well, Christians ought to be known for our love and our acceptance and our kindness toward others. If somebody asks you to, to bake one cake, then you should bake for them too. Didn't Jesus say, if somebody compels you to go one mile, you should go with him too? Well, then bake two cakes. Well, that sounds good. It, it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good. It feels nice. But is it right? Is that how we should respond? What would you do? How should we respond? We need to be able to give a reasoned response that explains our position from God's word based on creation, even if we, don't if, we, if we don't approve or celebrate what God does not approve or celebrate. How do we relate to the society around about us? Now, now because of the topic, I, I, I want to mention a couple other things as well, that if you want more information, you want to talk more about this, you, you want maybe, did he really say that, or what did he say? You want to even get a printed version of what I'm sharing this morning. I, I will have that available. Use your communication card. And just write me a note on that, and I'll get in contact with you, or I'll, I'll email you. The, the message should be on, uh, on uh, the Internet as well to stream if you, if you like to do that. Sometimes there's a technical glitch, and so I wanted this one to be available uh, as a manuscript as well, and it will be. Also, I have a couple of books. I've found some good resources. I haven't actually read completely through. I've browsed all three of these books. There'd be three books on the back table. One of them is called Compassion Without Compromise. One of them is called Washed in Waiting by Wesley Hill. I'm going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But, but these and one more title will be, if you want more information on this, if, if this is, in fact, something that you're facing and dealing with in a, in, in a family or friend situation right now, and you'd like to know more, these are books that I think would be of value and help to you. So I'll have those available. They'll be on the table. There's a little table right behind the back pew here in the middle, right in front of the front doors as you go out. So there's a few copies of each of these, and they cost us about $10 each. If you're able to donate something in a basket to cover those, that's great. If you need the book, please take the book and uh, make, make use of those. But for our time now, what does the Bible really say about same-sex marriage? Nothing. Doesn't say anything about same sex. The Bible never imagines it. 
In the, in, uh, in the book of Judges, in Romans chapter 1, in the, in the history of the Canaanites, nothing like this ever came up. There has been no same-sex marriage that the Bible even talks about or anticipates at that level. As the Supreme Court justices said earlier this week, in the millennial of human history, we have not come to this point before. What we can do is determine the mind of God on the matter, however. There are things around this, and certainly about same-sex relationships in general, that God does talk about. Can we determine the mind of God on the matter? To put it in popular terms, what would Jesus do? Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Would Jesus go to a same-sex wedding? Would Jesus turn the water into wine at a same-sex wedding? Well... We sang earlier, Jesus is a friend of sinners, right? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus went along. He, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. So does that, does that tell us where to go or how to, how to approach this? We need to sort of grab, grab hold of that concept. What does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Jesus is a friend of sinners in the sense that he comes near sinners for their salvation. Jesus is not the friend of sinners just to go along with them and have a good time at their party and sample the microbrews. He's not that kind of a friend of sinners. In fact, when Jesus comes near to sinners, he comes for the purpose, as he explains it himself. Those who criticize them said that he's a glutton, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's where we get the line to the hymn. But be careful what you mean by that. Because neither do we mean that Jesus is a drunkard nor a glutton. But he did come near sinners. He came to Zacchaeus' house, and that's where they criticized him. But he came to Zacchaeus' house to invite Zacchaeus to faith in him. And Zacchaeus repented and believed in Jesus, and salvation came to his house that day. Jesus came to Matthew's dinner party. He came to Matthew's house at Matthew's invitation after Matthew has already believed in him. And Matthew invites his friends so that there will be the opportunity for Jesus to call them to repentance as well. He didn't come just to celebrate with them in some immoral rebellion against God. Jesus came near sinners for the purpose of, of inviting them to God's grace. And God's forgiveness. Jesus comes near sinners for salvation, not for the party. Interestingly, in John chapter 15, Jesus tells his own disciples, you are my friends, not if you do whatever you want. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. That we walk with the Lord in the light of his word. That John, John wants us in 1 John chapter 1 to have fellowship along with him, with the Father and the Son. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship. We'll enjoy that friendship, that shared relationship together. That we cannot have, John says in John 1, if we are walking in darkness. We want to be friends of Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, inviting them to salvation. I like the way that that. Kevin DeYoung puts it in his book, which I believe is there on the back table. Jesus is not the friend of sinners to be their friend in their sin. Sorry, that was Bob, not Kevin. Here's Kevin's quote. Kevin put it this way, better than Bob. Jesus was a friend of sinners not because he winked at sin, ignored sin, or enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those engaged in immorality. 
Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel, sorry for their sins, and on their way to putting their faith in him. So, would Jesus turn water into wine at that wedding? Maybe two barrels of wine. Even better than he would make for the wedding of Cana? What would Jesus say about same-sex marriage? Well, let's start where Jesus would start. When they asked Jesus the hot-button issue of their day about marriage, which had to do with divorce and marriage, then Jesus answered them something like this. You guys don't know what you're talking about. That In the beginning, it was never like you guys have made it. He went all the way back to the beginning. He said, in the beginning, it wasn't like this at all. This was never God's intention. Have you not read, Matthew 19, 4 to, 4 to 6, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when asked the hot-button question about marriage of that day, Jesus responds by going back to the original mandate for marriage. When God originally ordained this thing, what did he say about it? That's what he does. So if we want to know about marriage in the mind of God, that's what we go back to. What has God said about marriage? Quoting Genesis 2.18, the creation account, God shows Adam that it's not good for man to be alone. It wasn't good for man to be alone, and so he shows Adam, first of all, and all of the other animals, they come two by two, and Adam gets to name them. And I don't know where he ever thought up of the word rhinoceros. Did you ever wonder that? Why do you call a Who thinks of a word like hippopotamus? That's a big word. I'm not sure that Adam actually called him that at all. I think that was only the Latin much later. But anyway, I digress. So he shows them all of the animals and all the rest of creation. And Adam's, like most men, a little slow. But he figures it out along the way. There's two of these, there's two of those, there's two of these, there's two of those, there's one of me's. And then, as he sees his need, then God makes him a helpmeet suitable for him, a complement. And the word that's used there, a suitable complement, the word that's used in Genesis 2, according to the, the, the best Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon out there today, it's called the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's it. it, it multi-volumes, it's a great read at night. But... They, do, they, they, they describe this word as, as referring to something that is opposite to, but complements and fits with. The, 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 the suitable help, the suitable companion, the suitable complement for, for Adam is one who is opposite of him and yet fits with him. And Eve does that. Eve compliments and fits with him in all kinds of different ways. And you men and women have been trying to figure it out ever since, haven't you? Because you're not the same. You compliment and you clash. And that's because you're fallen, dirty, rotten sinners. But that's probably a topic for another time. But that's the way God has set it up. And so then, then um, that corresponds to the woman that God made compliments, and the two of them go together, and they, two of them together, complement each other, only can fulfill God's mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it, to be fruitful and to multiply. 
Only in God's ordained manner of marriage can that happen. And I know not in every marriage can that even happen. Not every marriage can produce children. That's also a topic for another time. I don't want to get too far off to the side. That's, that's just another aspect of, of the brokenness that's within creation that we sometimes experience. But the original mandate is very clear from Genesis chapter 1. And now that whole creation thing, Jesus applies that to marriage continuing. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then in Genesis 2, the man and woman were naked and were not ashamed. This is the only God-sanctioned physical intimacy. Only male and female can become one flesh. Only male and female united can form one flesh from the two of them, the child that is born. Today, the human body is seen merely as a vehicle for self-expression. It is not. The human body is a vehicle for expression of the image of God in whose image we were created. We are intended, we are designed, we are created and made to declare His image, not merely to express myself or whatever about myself I want to express. It's my body, I can do with it whatever I want. It's really your body, where did you get it? How did you make it? No, I didn't make it, I, I received it from somebody. That's right. We were made in the image of God. We were created by God and thus to express His character in these bodies because we are whole person made in His image. The one who made us has the claim on us that He has never relinquished. That's how God defined marriage Himself. Marriage is defined by the one who made it and, and that has not changed since then. Let's stop at another point because this, this, this often comes up in the discussion. Well, okay, you started there back in Genesis, that's the Old Testament, and then from there, typically, we'll go to some discussion of the Old Testament law. But wait, we try to bring the Bible into this discussion, and we run into this right away. Isn't the Old Testament out of date? The Old Testament doesn't really relate to this discussion in our society today, does it? Because the Old Testament is out of date in all kinds of ways, isn't it? And you say, uh, I'm not sure how I deal with that as you finish your bacon and eggs. I'm not sure what to say with that as I plant a garden plot that has corn here and peas here and cucumbers here and the zucchini has just taken over everything else. Because didn't the law say plant one kind of seed in your field? Didn't the law say don't even mix the fibers in your clothing? All of you sinners sitting there with poly cotton shirts today. <laughs> rebelling against God's holy law given to Israel. There's the point. There's the point. The law says many things, and some things, most of what the law says, it says to Israel, God's covenant people who are under that law. There are some things the law says to everything. My short answer on this whole topic, isn't the Old Testament out of date? Well, the Old Testament narrows down to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18 speaks very explicitly and descriptively of certain kinds of immorality, especially and particularly sexual immorality. Leviticus 18. But Leviticus 18 is different than Leviticus 1 to 17, and Leviticus 18 is different than Leviticus 19. Let me show you how. Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. 
And while we're going there, we're flipping over to Leviticus 18, which is right after Genesis and Exodus. In the first 17 chapters of Leviticus, we have what you might call a law that is, well, it is ceremonial, it's also figurative, it's law that's meant to be object lessons. Every sacrifice points to Jesus offered in our place. Uh, Uncleanliness and even leprosy, they're meant to tell us something about sin. The priesthood, even the festivals like Passover and the Day of Atonement, they're to tell us about Jesus who would come and die for us. We don't bring a lamb to church because the Lamb of God has already died for us. That every Old Testament lamb pointed to. Some of the law, like Leviticus 19, which I call the, uh, the, uh, the seeds and clothing chapter, because Leviticus 19 talks about don't mix the fibers in your clothing, don't mix the seeds in your field. That's the uniqueness chapter and other parts of the law that are like that. God's people were to be unique from all the other peoples of the nations around them. There are some things that God told his people to do just to be different. And that's okay with us because you're a little different, aren't you? Yeah. We're supposed to be, according to Peter, I love the, old, the, the King James English here, a peculiar people, and some of you fit that perfectly. Well done. We're to be, a, we're to be different than the peoples of the, of the world around about us. And that's what chapters like Leviticus 19 tell us. But Leviticus 18 has more of a universal air to it. While most of the law is given to Israel, specifically, Leviticus 18, while addressing Israel, tells us right in the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter that these aspects are different in that they apply to all of humanity. Look at Leviticus 18 and verse 3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which, you are, which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes or their ways, and statutes even implies these are things that are permitted according to, to their society's rules and laws. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes. If a person does not, if a person does them, he will live by them. Look over at verse, um, let me see the other verse that I wanted to grab hold of here in, lost my place, Leviticus about, uh, well, it goes through, the chapter talks about various kinds of sin. It talks about adultery. It talks about incest. It talks about same-sex relationships. It talks about uh, relationships with animals called bestiality. It, it, it talks about the, the murder of children, the offering of children on, the idol, on, on idols for prosperity. All of these kinds of things. And then, it, in the midst of this, it also says, you shall not make yourself, in verse 24, You shall not make yourselves unclean by any of these things that have just been described. For by these, all the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land has become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these things. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. 
See, what God is saying here is specifically these things are the reason that the Canaanites and the others have been driven out of the land ahead of you. Just like God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, so he is judging the people of the land ahead of Israel and driving them out. The land is vomiting them out because of these kinds of sin. Now think about it a minute. God judges Sodom and Gomorrah for a particular kind of sin that just pushed God too far that is long before Moses and Mount Sinai and the law ever came along. How can, judge, how, how can God judge those people who are not his people, they are not descendants of Abraham, and yet God holds them accountable for their actions in a particular area because it violates his creation mandate. From creation, God made them male and female, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed from then till now. The most of the law of Israel is meant to re- reveal God in his image And all of humanity is accountable to God in whose image we are created. So then, the warning there is be careful that we don't make God in our own image. What do you mean by that? Well, it's been said, in the beginning, God made man in his own image. And ever since then, humanity has been returning the favor. Ever since then, we have been creating God in our own image. We have been fashioning the kind of God that we will choose to believe in. I believe in a God of love. Well, I'm glad you do. Because God is loving. God so loved that he gave his son. But that also tells me that God is holy. And that sin is so heinous that God's own son had to die in our place. And to make sin not that bad is to mean that the Son of God died for nothing. Died just because God had a hang-up or wanted to prove a point. No, he died because of God's love to redeem us who were so separated because of sin. See, we have to understand God as he has revealed himself to us. We will always make God in our own thinking less than he is. Be careful that we don't make God in our own image fashioning God according to our own understanding of what we think God should be like. There are are consequences to defining God on our terms. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is is really, in many ways, the New Testament Leviticus 18. Romans chapter 1 is very specific. Romans chapter 1 paints a clear picture, but often, because of the graphic picture that it paints, we miss the point. The point of Romans chapter 1 is, first of all, the departure of humanity from God as God is to a God of their own making, and how that then plays out. If I make God the way that I want God to be, then I'm not accountable to God as He is, I'm accountable to something less that I have made, and I can really do what I want. And Romans 1 traces that progression. That's one of the points out of Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Romans 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their own thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so there is this descent to, to exchange the, the, uh, the, the truth of God for a lie, to begin to worship creation rather than the creator. And as they do that, their understanding becomes darkened. Professing to be wise and more enlightened, they become foolish and more like Balaam. The New Testament in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, for instance, warns us against the error of Balaam, warns us against repeating the mistakes of those who have gone ahead of us, of wanting to agree with and wanting to say the things that others around us want to say rather than how God has revealed himself. And so then in, following chapter, in the following verses, verses 24 to 28, Paul describes the descent of the morality of humanity. And it's, it ends up being portrayed even in our deepest relationships. And why Paul singles this out is not because this is the worst sin possible. What, God is, what Paul is doing by the Holy Spirit is he's taking us back to why humanity was created. He's taking us back to the image of God. That's why he refers to here you have male with male doing that which is unnatural. And that phrase, male with male doing that which is unnatural, and your Bibles probably read men with men, or women and men. But it's male with male. And Paul uses those terms male with male because he's hearkening back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when God made them male and female. What man chooses to do is contrary to what God has ordained ever since creation. That's why this particular sin is pointed out. But Romans chapter 1 is not merely about God is, God is Romans 1 is not merely about this particular kind of sin, but because I'm talking about we have been made in a certain way, God made us and God made marriage. Can I say then that well, wait a minute, you, you talked about what's natural. What's natural according to creation? But what if I was made this way? What if I was born with a propensity toward same-sex attraction? What if, if I was made this way, if God made me this way, how can it be wrong? How can you say it's wrong? That's a good question, isn't it? I hope you've wrestled with that question. If we're going to be fair with people, we've got to wrestle with those questions. And the answer, I think, is not that what, however I am must be right, because how I am is wrong. How all of us are is wrong. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, humanity is fallen. Humanity is broken in all kinds of ways. Some of you are born with propensities to anger, even violent rage. Some of you are born with stubbornness. Others of you just come across it over time. You sort of grew into it. We're, we're born, some of us, very sensitive and tender-hearted. Other of us are born with a propensity toward, toward um, a, a, a harshness or a, a self-centeredness. These are characteristics within us, and they're not all good. They're propensities that we're born with that are twisted caricatures of the image of God. 
Those do not excuse how we might act them out. We're not free to act out on any particular propensity that we might have. Um, parallel that, some people are born with a propensity to certain kinds of cancer. There's a genetic propensity to certain kinds of cancer. Some people are born with a propensity to Alzheimer's. It doesn't mean that those things then are right because I was made that way. It means that all of humanity is broken in all kinds of different ways. You know, in this area, there's a, one of the books that I, that I, that I have, I, I've, I've referred to this sometimes in the past, is by Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill is a graduate of Wheaton College. He actually has a, new, a, 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 a doctorate in New Testament Greek. He's, a, he's an evangelical scholar, and he is same-sex attracted. He is attracted toward men. He is not attracted to pretty young ladies. He's tried to be attracted to pretty young ladies, and he's not. He's tried the various kind of therapies and counseling and so on, and, and for him it hasn't helped. He finds himself attracted to men and not women, and as an evangelical who believes that all of his life is worship to God, and he knows what God has clearly said, how does he reconcile those two? The title of his book explains it. It's called Washed and Waiting. You see, to be attracted in any particular direction is not sin. To pursue that attraction, if it is in a sinful direction, is sin. To look and desire is not sin. But to look in order to desire, to look for the purpose of desiring, is sin. I'll give an example. How many of you men... How many of you men can be attracted to and desire a pretty lady? Don't raise your hands. Don't, don't. Oh, my goodness. We could, we could have trouble in a hurry here. But we'll be talking about that one the rest of the day. To be attracted in that way is not sin. To, to, to see and desire is not sin. To see for the purpose of desiring that is sin. See, a person who is same-sex attracted is no more guilty of sin than a per person who is opposite-sex attracted. It's what you do with that attraction. And do I, do I live in God-ordained means and actions, or do I go my own way? Do I follow my own desires wherever they will lead me? And none of us can do that. No matter how we're attracted, none of us have that permission. None of us want to do that. So then, in chapter 1 of Romans, homosexuality, is same-sex attraction is not unique. It's not a unique sin in Romans 1. Look the way that Romans 1 ends. People miss this a lot. Verse 29 Describing humanity, this humanity that has departed from God, and so God has given them over to their own sin, to their own desires, and he sums it up this way. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, not just one kind. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Huh, we slipped that one in there. Maybe the kids should have stayed. You, you, you pass that on later, parents. Okay? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
There's a bunch of warnings there. First of all, don't single one sin out above another. We do that because we want to justify ourselves at others' expense. Well, I may have some difficulty, but I'm not like this or that. No, no, no. It's all level ground at the cross. We started at the table today because we wanted to start of a reminder that we all needed Christ's redemption. Every one of us. For the same reason. Because of sin. Because of humans, humanity's fallenness. Okay. Now from there, from there, Romans 1 also talks about not only those who practice, but those who approve of them. I may not practice it, but I dare not approve of that which God condemns. I dare not go along with that which God insists is against his character, his nature, his purpose, what God has ordained. I can't not only not practice it, but I can't approve of, give permission or applause to those who do. The third thing Romans 1 tells us is the chapter isn't actually about them at all. It's about us. You see, Romans 1 is supposed to be obvious. Romans 1 is supposed to be describing sin that is obvious that everybody knows this is sin because the purpose of Romans 1 is to get us into Romans 2, and Romans 2 is about you. You who judge others, don't you know you practice the same kinds of things? That's where Romans 2 goes. Romans 1 and Romans 2 tell us to be very gracious toward other sinners caught in sin because we also are merely sinners saved by grace. We too are sinners saved by grace. As also sinners, we come alongside and we come near other sinners that we might show them to the same Savior that we have found, that God has so graciously given for us. We want them to have the same Savior that we found that we have been shown. That's what Romans 1 tells us. I can't approve of a same-sex wedding then. You see, a wedding is different than just any other dinner party. A wedding, when I go to a wedding, this whole issue of approval in Romans 1, when I go to a wedding, I go as, as a guest to honor and to witness this solemn occasion. If it's a religious wedding, it's a worship service. And I'm going to witness and participate that which is being done. I'm giving my approval by my presence. In fact, sometimes the question is asked, if anyone here knows of any cause why these two should not be joined in marriage today, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. What will I say? Will I speak up or will I be forever compromised? You say, well, that question won't be asked. It wouldn't put you... <laughs> Seriously? Of course, people will put us on the spot all the time. And yet we have to be ready, be able to give a reasoned and gracious response. I cannot go to that wedding because I cannot celebrate that which denies or contradicts what God has ordained for his creation. I dare not approve what God has condemned. So that's where we stand in terms of the topic how do we relate? Some have said, don't bake that cake. Others have said, bake two cakes or bake the best cake ever. I want to suggest, bake a different cake. As also sinners who are saved by grace, we come near to others. Not to celebrate sin or immorality, but to, but to befriend them. I won't bake the wedding cake, but I could bake a birthday cake. Because the birthday cake celebrates you. And I care about you. I appreciate you. 
I must decline the wedding invitation, but perhaps at the same time I could extend a dinner invitation. I, I, I can't come to the wedding, but it's not because I don't value you as a person, as my friend, maybe daughter, son, niece, cousin, etc. I have to disagree with you about this, but I still value you. Maybe in a couple weeks we can all have dinner together. I'll bake a dessert cake. I'll bake a different cake. You see, friends don't have to agree on everything to be friends. We can differ. In fact, sometimes friends are the ones who will differ. Friends are the ones who will challenge you in what you're doing because they care about you more than anybody else who just says, yeah, whatever, live and let live. Because friends are friends, they care for one another. Now, I know you're going to get pushback on this. I know this has become an issue of identity. I know this is an issue where people will say, well, you're a homophobe. If you reject this, you're rejecting me. This is my identity. Not necessarily. I don't have to accept that premise. As, now, I cannot, I cannot um, change somebody else's insistence. If they're going to insist that that one aspect of them becomes their identity, but I don't have to agree with that. You know, there's a whole bunch about my sexual propensities that most of you know nothing about. And don't worry, I'm not going to go into them this morning. You don't need to know. That's not the central part of my identity with you. You know, if you want to get to central identity, God talks about central identity. Central identity is if any person is in Adam or in Christ. That's the only single thing that is our defining identity. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Not what kinds of attractions or propensities in all kinds of different areas of sin might be your besetting weakness. That's not the point. That doesn't define who you are any more than the fact that I'm a Seahawks fan defines who I am. That doesn't define me. That's just something about me. And I'm not trying to equate those two levels. I understand this is a deep-seated thing that, for instance, this man Wesley Hill writes. He writes of the struggle and he writes of the difficulty of it. And we need to understand that with graciousness. But you and I will not let any single aspect become the defining issue of any person's identity or why we might avoid them. When people talk, want to talk about identity, let's talk about identity. Let's talk about identity in Jesus that all of humanity needs. Why do we have to get into it at all? I know time's getting away. I, I want to make this point. Why do we have to get into it at all? Why can't we just say live and let live, right? It's been said, if you don't like same-sex marriage, then don't same-sex marry. That sounds good, too, initially. But the next step after that is, well, if you don't like abortion, well, just don't get an abortion. If you don't like murder and riot, well, don't murder and riot. Some things are wrong, and some things are bad, harmful for the individual, and even harmful for society as a whole. So you cannot make that just sweeping statement generally. Let me give you an example why. One statistics. A, a, a psychiatrist out of Johns Hopkins um, in a recent Wall Street Journal article pointed out that the suicide rate for persons identifying as transsexual, the suicide rate is 20 times the norm. 20 times. That screams that something is wrong here, and do we care? 20 times more likely to take their own life, and do we care, or will we simply live and let live? Folks, to live and let live is to live and let die. And that is not the love of Christ. 
He came into this mess because he would not let us die without stepping in and taking our place. No, it does matter. I do not love my neighbor by approving and promoting for them to do which God has declared that he has and must judge. The early church faced a similar dilemma. The early church faced the dilemma of what we will we do? This is in 1 Corinthians 10. We're not going to turn there because of time. But in 1 Corinthians 10, the early church faces a dilemma. Here we are in an adulterous society, a society that is normal to have, go to temples and, and to have feasts that celebrate the idols in those temples. And yet we have been born again into faith in Jesus Christ. And now my, my, my friend, my neighbor... My colleague at work wants to invite me over to have, have dinner, and I know that the meat that we're going to eat has been sacrificed to an idol. What do I do? It's a, it's a similar situation. What do I do? It's just meat. Eat the meat. But if I go, if I were to go and eat the same meat at the idol's temple, now I am participating in idolatry. And Paul says, stay away from that. Go to the home. Eat the meat. Eat whatever's served. Buy meat in the market, whatever market, whatever meat is for sale. But if somebody makes an issue about it and says, oh, you know, this meat is devoted to this idol or that one, that's when I have to back away. Because now you've made the idol the issue instead of just eating meat together and having dinner together. That's the difference between a dinner party and a wedding party, you see? To, for, to, to join into the wedding party is to join in to this lie. It's, it's to participate in some form of this society's idolatry, and it's to, it's to join in in foisting this lie upon our society that the emperor's clothes are beautiful. So then, where does that leave us? I cannot bake that cake. I cannot bake two cakes. But I could and I should bake a different cake. I would bake a birthday cake and celebrate you and honor you. I would bake a coffee cake and we'll get together and hang out and connect anytime. I'll bake a dessert cake and we'll all get together and enjoy a good dinner and dessert together. Just because I can't affirm this kind of marriage doesn't mean that I care any less about you. I want to be your friend. I want you to be my friend. Even if we don't agree on everything, I won't make this agreement a precondition for our friendship, and I hope you won't either. You see, we don't speak out of self-righteousness. None of us is worthy. As a verse in, clothing, in closing, I want to read, put it on the screen. This verse speaks to all of us, and it invites any of us. It says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want, Lord, out of your word, our own lives to be offerings to you. 
even as we receive this morning's offering next in our worship service, Father, that uh, also in that offering we would receive requests for prayer. We receive requests for counsel, advice, or help. Lord, we, we want to present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. That indeed is our worship this morning. Father, we do that because we believe in the Son. We believe in the one who is risen from the dead because our own sins have been forever dealt with. Father, we believe in the power of his blood to forgive our sin, any of it and all of it. And we thank you for him in Jesus' name.